Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. Chapter 7. A Tenuous Connection. This is really the second half of the last one, but I'm giving it another name this time. A Tenuous Connection. In Chapter 2 of this podcast, the Reverend Tim Ravenhall identified the story that Christian belief is centred on. He said, Trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's it. You just keep believing that story is true. If Christianity was a religion recognised to have been founded by Paul and to be based on his teaching about a Christ figure, its connection to its founder would be no problem. It's well substantiated, quite solid. That story was clearly taught by Paul. But the Christian claim is that this religion was founded by Jesus, and that's where the connection issue comes in. Did Jesus teach this concept about himself? Does it originate with the man Christianity is supposed to be all about? Did Paul get it from his teaching? The question is not about whether this idea is good or not. It's about whether or not it's true, or whether or not Jesus taught it. This should be verified with diligence. The concept does hold a nice idea to be devoted to, for Christians that is who see it as this extraordinary thing that God has done in order to save them. But it's also the story that says everyone else is going to hell. It's the story that says, from birth, in our natural state, that is our destiny. And then God did something about it, but only for people who believe this story is true. Those with wrong ideas about sin and God's judgment are forever guilty and condemned. Of course, it's not that simple. Christian salvation is not just about believing the story. There's faith in Jesus, repentance, asking forgiveness, asking him into your life as Lord. But in this podcast, I'm bringing things down to simple and straightforward terms. And I know enough about Christianity to say that if you don't believe this story, that's a definite disqualification for heaven. So for many people, it's dangerous to question the story like this. I believe old friends have been praying for me and my eternal destiny, and I know it's not because I haven't asked for forgiveness through Jesus, haven't asked him into my life as Lord and guide, haven't looked to his teaching in my life. It's because I don't believe Paul's story anymore. So if this inquiry determines that the Christ concept doesn't make substantial appearances in the teaching of Jesus, what does that mean? If you don't believe in Paul, you're not going to heaven? Or does it mean, heaven forbid, that Paul might have been wrong? And it's a good idea to have another look at what Jesus taught for something to centre your belief on. It's worth asking, is it true? Is there a good connection between Paul and his story and Jesus? This is a good question to ask and we're going to ask it properly. I'm calling it a tenuous connection. See what you think. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, a tenuous connection, idea or situation is weak and possibly does not exist. 
The following is the wrapping up of an extensive argument for the idea that the Christ concept of Christianity is actually not found in the Jewish substrata of the stories we have about Jesus in the New Testament. I hope you'll excuse the repetition. I am aware of this and I'm trying to minimise it, but in this episode I'm at pains to be thorough and bring together the evidence for this conclusion. And this is because it's such a pivotal issue. It's the first and biggest assumption. It's either right or it's that fork in the road at the start of a journey in the wrong direction. At least it is for those who might want to be on the narrow road that Jesus spoke of. Again, I'm hoping I will get some well-thought-through feedback from those who disagree with me to balance this whole thing out. I'd like to say hi and thank you to the first two people who have sent in voice messages. Sally, thank you for your recommendation. And Matthew from New York, thanks for the encouragement. It was really good to hear your words. Now, looking at the Christ concept. We're going to trace it back in time in the same way we did with the anti-Semitism, from John to Mark. But first a few things to note. Have we determined that there were Gentile Christians who were not afraid to add the odd bit of text to the Gospel story to suit their purposes? I think so. People change stories all the time. Were they motivated to maybe do this for Paul in his teaching? Seems likely, because Paul's teaching is what they believed. And it was a bit different. And does the appearance of the Christ concept diminish as we go back in time from John to Mark? Well, let's see. Allusions to the Christ concept are reasonably strong in the Gospel of John. It's not outlined or taught like in the letters of Paul, but it is significantly there. So that's John, our starting point. We've looked at chapter 6 where Jesus is depicted as telling people they need to in some way consume his flesh and blood. Clearly a reference to the Eucharist, a very Christian rite about Jesus' sacrifice for sins. In the first chapter, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's there in John, so I haven't gone through the book to find the best examples. And then there's quite a step down from there to the Synoptic Gospels. In fact, it mostly comes down to a few words that Jesus says at a Passover meal. Matthew, from chapter 26, verse 26, quotes, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Unquote. Okay, now Luke. From chapter 22, verse 19, quote, And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Unquote. And then Mark. Chapter 14, verse 22, quote, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, 
and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them, unquote. Okay, so what happens when we go back in time from Matthew to Mark? Five very significant words drop out. For the forgiveness of sins. And what makes this doubly interesting is that Matthew is copying Mark at this point, something he does quite a lot, often word for word. Here's just one example of that copying. Mark 1, 16-18, quote, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him, unquote. And then Matthew 4, 18, 20, quote, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him, unquote. Looks like obvious copying. What else could it be? Of course, it's been translated into English, so we're not seeing the similarities in the Greek text. But the translators have been faithful in representing the almost identical wording in the English translation. So here's Matthew's version of Jesus' words about the wine, side by side with Mark's. Mark, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Matthew, copying Mark, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew was copying Mark. He got to the word many, maybe hesitated, and then he added the bit about forgiveness of sins. There are alternatives to this. Matthew might not have been the one doing the copying, but the consensus among historians that Mark is the source document is well established, and I think for good reason. Another theory I found was that there was no copying going on, but that they wrote down what had been passed on by oral tradition, and people were very accurate in the way they remembered things in those days. But same wording? In many passages where you compare Matthew and Mark, it indicates copying from something that's been written. So, having a closer look at this. The example of copying I read out, I didn't have to look very hard for it, I just started with chapter 1 of Matthew, and there was a good example. Over half of Matthew has been copied from Mark. Then about a quarter of Matthew is shared with Luke, and a fifth of it is unique to Matthew. Matthew seems to be copying from a number of sources to tell the story of Jesus. He certainly wouldn't need to do this if he was familiar with the story, or if he was familiar with the recitation of oral tradition. If this writer was associated with the original storytellers, and if he was one of the people maintaining memories from the actual events by oral tradition, he probably would have been a Jew doing so in Aramaic. It's possible that the oral tradition could have been translated into Greek and then memorised with incredible, almost word-for-word -word accuracy, but it is a bit incredible. And then... Let's go back to the passage in question again. If he's in the middle of a passage, he's copying from Mark, and he adds five words, and then goes back to copying from Mark. Okay, let's have a look at that. Does he go back to copying Mark? 
Mark, quote, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, unquote. Matthew, quote, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, unquote. Okay, so for those five words, did he find another source? Did he discover information about five words that Mark missed? Was there an oral tradition for five words that came to mind? No, he inserted them. It's the only reasonable explanation. And why did he feel the need to insert them? Because these words weren't there, and he wanted them to be there. Is this to some degree the meeting of two movements? This copyist is a Christian, and it's the Christian who feels the need to change things in order to make the story comply with his belief. To have Jesus say something that he didn't say in the story that is being copied. Religious correctness provides incentive to change things. Religious correctness, political correctness, same sort of thing. It seems to me Matthew was being a bit sneaky there. And when you sum it all up, we're looking at the Christ concept dwindling down to almost nothing as we go back in time through these documents. There wasn't much of it in the first place, in the synoptics, and now we've lost the only few words that actually said it. So having travelled back to Mark, let's have a look at this, the closest thing to a primary source document that we have about Jesus. Is the Christ concept in Mark at all? Is it possible to read Mark and come away with the Christ concept if you don't start with the assumption that dying as a sacrifice to pay for the penalty of our sins is the reason why Jesus was heading for Jerusalem. To answer this question, I went through Mark to find anything that might refer to this Christ concept, and here it is in total. Chapter 8, verse 29, Peter says that Jesus is the Mashiach, the Jewish Messiah, and then Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. Then verse 31, and I know I have read these out a few times. Again, quote, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Unquote. Chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. Chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus says to his disciples, quote, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Unquote. Chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus again says to his disciples, quote, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise, unquote. Then chapter 10, verse 45. 
In speaking to his disciples about being a servant, Jesus says, quote, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Unquote. And then the Passover meal, chapter 14, verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, after giving them the bread, Take it, this is my body. And then about the wine, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That's it. I don't think I missed anything. There's chapter 1, verse 4, that says of John the Baptist, And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This speaks of forgiveness for sins, but here it's through repentance. In the third chapter of this podcast, I interviewed Rabbi Philip Kaplan at the Great Synagogue in Sydney, and I asked him how sin is dealt with in Judaism. Here's what he said. So there's uh, two, two, two ways in which a person can sin, right? You can sin in your behavior with another human being, and you can sin in, in your behavior and responsibilities towards God. Mm -hmm. So when you uh, sin against another human being, you have to reconcile it with that human being. There's nothing God can do for you mm -hmm. to make that better until you uh, reconcile with that person, that you mm -hmm. have to apologize to them. Um, they should forgive you. Um, there's an idea of if you try to apologize sincerely at a certain amount of times and they don't, still don't forgive you, then it's on them. So mm -hmm. there's there's all these ideas about that, but it's totally between the two people to, to reconcile. In terms of sins uh, with a human being and God, um, that is dealt with um, with uh, repenting. Repentance is a concept called tshuva. It means like return is what it literally means. Mm -hmm. um, it means returning to your to your true essence, which is observing the mitzvot, uh, commandments, being close and having a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So returning to that, to trying to change your behavior, be a better person, be better to other people, be a better Jew. be. Yeah. Um, and then there's also Yom Kippur, um, which is the one day of the year where we after we've done this process of reconciling with other people and uh, repenting for our sins against God, then we have this day that um, is a day of, of cleansing um, and being able to have a, a blank slate. Okay, so repentance. In keeping with what it says in Mark, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So summing up the potential references to the Christ concept in Mark, there are three and a bit passages where Jesus says pretty much the same thing about his rejection, suffering, death and resurrection. Then there's his life given as a ransom for many. And then at Passover, the bread, take it, this is my body, and the wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That's it. For the forgiveness of sins is not there or anywhere in Mark, in relation to his death. So we have sacrifice, but for what? There's the word covenant there. This is my blood of the covenant. What does that mean? What covenant could he be referring to? I have no idea. The Christian position is to say it's the new covenant, which is about, of course, Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. But we're not seeing that here. What covenant? That would be a question for people who have a better understanding of Jewish covenants, rather than people who assume the Christian interpretation. Although Paul was a Jew, and the Christian interpretation is his interpretation, in Paul we have a contemporary Jew 
who answers that question for us very insistently. We'll be looking into that in the next episode. If Jesus did say these words to his disciples at a Passover meal, what might he have meant? If he was breaking the news about his death being a sacrifice for sins, he might have said a bit more than that. Both Jesus and the writer of this story don't seem to have in mind that this concept is being put forward here as the meaning of this occasion. At this point, we could go back to the didache again. Well, that's, that's how I say it. Some people say didache, which is probably right. The didache is a document that gives us an early rendition of the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is traditionally a Christian sacrament which commemorates the Passover meal we just read about in Mark. It's reasonable to assume that this document was used by a community of people who believed it to be a repetition of what that Passover meal was about. If Jesus made it different to the regular Passover meal by the things he said to his disciples about the bread and wine, what does the Didache tell us about that? Here's what the Didache has in simple English without the these and thous of the Old English translation and without the superfluous words. Didache chapter 9 Now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. First concerning the cup. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, which you made known to us through Jesus. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus. That's about it. It says more, but I think that's the takeaway. The rest is superfluous to me. If you want to check on that, though, go to earlychristianwritings.com and select Didache or Didache in the left-hand column. So make of that what you will. Thanks for the Holy Vine of David, could be speaking of a covenant, and the life and knowledge made known to us through Jesus. Sounds like it's about Jesus' teaching and not Paul's teaching. Those who have been listening to this podcast through from the start will recall what the Didache revealed in relation to the Christ concept. But I know I have a lot of listeners who are jumping in on the latest episode. So I'll paste part of what I said about the Didache back in chapter 4 here. Then in chapter 14 of the Didache it says, quote, But every Lord's day gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who is at odds with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord, in every place and time, offer to me a pure sacrifice. Unquote. Here the sacrifice referred to is made by the supplicant and not by Jesus. This the Jewish people would have understood. Didache chapter 4, quote, Be not a stretcher forth, of the hands to receive, and a drawer of them back to give. If you have anything through your hands, you shall give ransom for your sins. Unquote. In Christianity, Jesus pays the ransom for our sins. Here, those who do good are doing that for themselves. The Didache also places the teaching of Jesus as primary. Chapter 1, quote, There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two. The way of life, then, is this. 
First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would not want done to you. And of these sayings, the teaching is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same? But love those who hate you, and you shall not have an enemy. Unquote. Do not the Gentiles do the same? This is a Jew writing to Jews. Right, that was from chapter 4 of this podcast. Jesus' teaching, not Paul's teaching. This document clearly predates the book of Acts. There's no question there in my mind. Well, the tradition it represents predates Acts. The reasoning for this, in relation to the Christ concept, is that while it makes sense that people might have added to the words of Jesus at that Passover meal, and we've seen evidence for this, it makes no sense that they would have taken it away. So it's in the later documents that we see the added extras, as in Matthew, and in the earlier that we see the less evolved source material, as in Mark. The word covenant doesn't appear in the Didache, so it may not help us with that question, but sacrifice does. And the offering of sacrifice in this document, I presume it refers to offerings at the temple in Jerusalem. It contains no reference to the death of Jesus being a sacrifice. It's all about living in good conscience with others and before God, and caring for those in need. It outlines the teaching of Jesus, whereas the Christ concept seems to negate the teaching of Jesus. So the Didache looks like it predates the Christian Eucharist, as we know it, and it seems to predate the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem, where sacrifices were made up until 70 CE. The destruction of the Temple was the end of the practice. Does the Didache predate Mark? It looks like scholars have a wide range of opinions on the dating of the Didache, anywhere from as early as 50 CE through to the early 3rd century, and later according to some, but there does look to be a tendency to view it as quite early. Does the lack of reference to Jesus' sacrifice in the Didache represent an understanding of Jesus that predates the idea that his main purpose was to get to Jerusalem for his sacrificial death. Because there are issues with this idea, as we've seen in chapter 4 of this podcast. His disciples didn't know about it. Here's a short excerpt from chapter 4, although to get the full picture you'd need to listen to the whole episode if you haven't already done so. The disciples of Jesus don't seem to have believed that story. We're told they didn't understand when Jesus talked about how he was going to die. So whatever reason there was for this, it seems quite clear that they hadn't been told about it. So how could they believe it? They were the followers of Jesus, his very disciples, and they weren't being taught to be Christians. The teaching they received as his disciples was no help when it came to this storyline. The main plot is yet to be revealed, and it's as if Jesus doesn't want to spoil the surprise, the big twist. Yeah.
of course, there is the alternative, that what Jesus taught his followers was in fact it, and he wasn't hiding things. But that's not what we're meant to believe. Okay, back again. So the evidence I've put forward in chapter 4, and in this episode, to say passages are questionable, is good evidence. There's good reason to ask these questions. And the thing is, if you get your highlighter out and mark all the bits in the Synoptic Gospels that are questionable, for these sorts of reasons, it seems like the bits about the Christ concept will all be in there. I know I'm hammering away at this thing I'm calling the Christ concept, as if it's my mission in life because I just can't stand it, but I want to say that I did not set out to bring this concept down. I was never offended by it. It's just the natural target of this process, all lines of reasoning requiring it to be scrutinised, and it's not holding up. For me personally, I've looked for good reasons to believe it, and I've found reasons not to believe that it was taught by Jesus. But it's so attached to our image of Jesus, the idea that it's what he was all about. It wasn't that long ago that I felt like it was a no-go zone to question this, like it's hallowed ground, and I still have a vague sense of worry that I've gone too far. I know how offensive this is. This is the thing that salvation depends on. But it's also the criteria in this belief system that distinguishes adherents from people who are lost in sin and going to hell. So that makes us even. A claim like that needs to be backed up with some good reasoning, and there's nothing wrong with pointing that out. And I'm a heretic. This is what I do. But I haven't always been a heretic. I started out with full devotion to this idea, and I cherished it. I believed that it was the answer to humankind's greatest need. I taught it in schools, as a scripture teacher, at youth groups, Christian kids' camps. I did street outreach, and I wrote gospel tracts and the like. I was one of those annoying Christians who brought it up in conversation whenever I thought it was fitting. One time, when I was out in Kings Cross, Sydney, with some friends doing some street outreach, backing up one of our band who was on a guitar, every now and then breaking into some preaching to passers-by between songs, while we handed out Christian tracts, a man came up to me, got right in my face and said, How can you believe in a God who creates people with the foreknowledge that he's going to send them to hell just because they don't believe this message? I had an answer for a lot of questions back in those days, but this one had me. I knew there was nothing I could say that would in any way be sufficient, and that his was the moral side of the argument. His derision was warranted, and I said he had a good point. But I was so confident in what I believed, I just kept handing out those tracts. That was many years before I started asking any real questions. How do we know God is sending people to hell for not believing a story? Because it says so in a book? What if there is a creator and he lets people write whatever they want in books? God has been misrepresented. Jesus has been misrepresented. But people don't see it that way. I think that man was angry with God, not the Christian story. If he existed, that is, which he couldn't exist because... 
How could he do such a thing? In the West, there's a common impression, I think, that it's either the God that is described by the doctrines of the Christian Church or no God at all. And the same applies to Jesus. The Jesus of Christianity, the only option. People outside see the church's iconic imagery of Jesus and take no interest in the man. Ex-Christians go from life devotion to disinterest after losing faith in Christian ideas like the inspiration of Scripture. This man we know as Jesus. There is something extraordinary here, and there is a real story about him and his followers behind the Christian story. The Christian story. It's looking a bit fishy. And we'll see that there are plenty of fishy bits in the New Testament, indications of a cover-up carried out by the people who controlled the book. I know when I say words like cover-up and talk about documents being made to disappear, story behind the story, it all smacks of conspiracy theory, and with that comes the impression that a thesis lacks credibility. It doesn't make sense to distrust the mainstream story that much. It's extremist. Well, here's the definition of the term conspiracy theory provided by Wikipedia. Quote, A conspiracy theory is an explanation for an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by sinister and powerful groups, often political in motivation, when other explanations are more probable. The term has a pejorative connotation, and I'm inserting this definition, which means expressing contempt or disapproval, implying that the appeal to a conspiracy is based on prejudice or insufficient evidence. Conspiracy theories resist falsification and are reinforced by circular reasoning, both evidence against the conspiracy and an absence of evidence for it are reinterpreted as evidence of its truth, whereby the conspiracy becomes a matter of faith rather than something that can be proved or disproved. Unquote. This is interesting. This seems to be saying that the term conspiracy theory naturally refers to a theory that is improbable, implying that it is based on prejudice or insufficient evidence. And I think this is generally true of what people think when they hear the term. There are a lot of improbable conspiracy theories out there, and people who believe them can be gullible. But doesn't that suggest that there are no theories about conspiracies that are true? As if there's no need to include such a possibility in the definition of the term. A conspiracy is a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful, according to the Oxford Dictionary. Conspiracy theories generally question mainstream stories and say that people have conspired to generate those stories. So if a story gets big enough, if enough people believe it, does that mean it must be true? You'd have to be pretty gullible to believe that people in power are not doing that sort of thing. The term conspiracy theory seems to have an assumption attached, the assumption that the mainstream story must be close enough to the truth. So who are the gullible ones? Well, that depends on what story we're talking about. Here's the last part of the definition of conspiracy theory 
but with the words wrong theory in place of conspiracy theory. Wrong theories resist falsification and are reinforced by circular reasoning. Both evidence against the wrong theory and an absence of evidence for it are reinterpreted as evidence of its truth, whereby the wrong theory becomes a matter of faith rather than something that can be proved or disproved. The next episode is where we really start to look between the lines of this Christian attachment to the Hebrew Bible, following the clues. It's like this podcast has got a life of its own, and I'm just following a trail of breadcrumbs that were left there, as if on purpose. Coming up next, Chapter 8, Acts of the Spotlight. Thanks for listening. That's pretty much it for this episode, but I do have a postscript to read out for those who are interested. Something that I found quite interesting. The passage that I read out to show how Matthew copied Mark in this episode, where Jesus says, Come follow me and and I will send you out to fish for people. That was the latest NIV translation that I accessed online. My old NIV has, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. As you can imagine, the original Greek has men and not the politically correct people. So another edit by the modern translators. Changes are still being made. These days, it's politically correct to be inclusive and not sexist or racist. Not so when these documents were written. Back then, I believe it was politically correct to be sexist and racist. Political correctness provides incentive to change things.